Hi and welcome to On Philosophers Liebe Tanker, a pod where we discuss philosophy with philosophers. My name is Fredrik Eriksson and today we have four guests. Uh, should we start uh, on my left side? Yeah, uh, my name is Max, Max Minden Rivera. I'm a PhD student at Lund University where I work mainly with philosophy of mind and the philosophy of perception. And uh, I'm Signe Savien, PhD student in practical philosophy, also here at Lund. I work mainly on um, a topic called long-termism. I'm uh, Robin Stenwell. I'm a senior lecturer in theoretical philosophy here at Lund. And I'm Fritz Gorbachev, and I'm a lecturer at the Department of Philosophy, but I'm also a researcher at the Department of History of Ideas here in Lund. You're all very welcome. Uh, today's episode is an episode on philosophical thought experiments. What are they and what purpose do they serve? We have previously in this pod presented two classical thought experiments, namely the trolley problem and the get your problem. But what are philosophical thought experiments? And like the two mentioned, do they have to be problems? What do you say? Should we start with you, Fritz? Well, the way I tend to think of it is that maybe we can't give a precise definition. I mean, there are numerous sort of attempts out there, but uh, at any rate, it's some kind of controlled speculation, usually in narrative form. And usually it's maybe supposed to either prop up or defeat a particular theory or idea, but that's not, I mean, as I said, these are sort of usual features, not necessarily necessary conditions for including them. So um, is, is this something that has uh, showed up in, in, in the field of philosophy the last uh, century or a decade, or is this something that's been existing for a long time? I, uh, I think this is as old as philosophy itself, thought experiments. Um, yeah, I mean, if you go back to, to the uh, Socrates and the pre-Socratics, when philosophy was really kind of about about being in dialogue um, and about telling stories and about using those stories in order to uh, develop conclusions about how the world is um, and how we are and our place in the world. Um, I think thought experiments really come from that, just kind of uh, giving a certain scenario about how things are and then trying to tease out what the philosophical implications of that scenario are. So I think they've been around for a really long time. Um. So do, can we learn something from, from these uh, thought experiments? Are there actually things of value that we can learn? I certainly think so. Um, the way I was taught about philosophy was that the closest thing to raw data that we have in philosophy is our intuitions. And the thought experiments are what we have to bring out these intuitions. So when we do practical philosophy, when we do ethics, I think that they certainly have some value. Are there differences between, I mean, here we have analytical philosophy. Is there a difference between how uh, thought experiments are used within the, the field of uh, practical philosophy versus theoretical philosophy? I know there's a distinction used mostly in Sweden, perhaps, but, but still, are, are there differences? Or is this mainly used in, in, for instance, in practical philosophy? I would guess no, but I would guess that the intuitions that they aim to bring out are a bit different in ethics or practical philosophy. They would probably draw more towards moral intuitions, whereas in theoretical philosophy, they would probably kind of like 
pick out some other intuitions, some other types. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think maybe a more interesting division is between the analytic tradition and the continental tradition. And I think oh. both of these traditions uh, make use of thought experiments, but typically they're a little bit fuller and a little bit richer in the continental tradition. They're a little bit more like stories or, or narratives, um, and they often include uh, a little bit more detail and fullness. It's, it's really like fiction, uh, mm. often if you're reading someone like Sartre or Camus, then these are kind of full stories that are developed over pages, whereas in the analytic tradition, which is kind of anglophone tradition of particularly the last 100, 150 years, um, thought experiments are often very kind of abstract and they're uh, very sparse, and all you really have there is exactly what's needed in order to kind of lever at a particular intuition point. Which well, of course, I'm sorry, which yeah. of course brings a lot of exactness. I mean, that's the virtue of, of the analytical side of things. But on the other hand, there might be a feeling that we might be missing stuff that isn't really there in the, in the fuller versions that we, we encounter in, um, in the continental tradition. But also, in, I, would, uh, I would add, in a lot of analytic work that's been done in the sort of philosophy of fiction and in using more narrative art forms to tease out these kinds of things as well. That's another way to get at that richness and fullness that you're sort of pointing towards. So what's the purpose of, of uh, thought experiments in philosophy? Is it to test hypotheses or to choose between two, di two different theories, for example? What's the main purpose, uh, would you say, in philosophy? I'm not sure that there's a purpose, but they can certainly at least sometimes do all of the things that you mentioned. Although I'm also tending towards a certain level of skepticism. I'm not perhaps as fully embracing as fully uh, their usefulness as I, as, as I once was. But can you tell something about that? What, 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 what did you... What do you think about the usefulness before and what do you think about it now? Well, one thing that I've been thinking about lately is, is precisely what Max and I talked about earlier, namely that there might be uh, a problem when, they're, when thought experiments are so sparse. We might be missing out on, say, that we're thrown into cases and we're asked to disregard our own history or, or the, the people involved are often portrayed just as anonymous um, anonymous workers on the railway track, for instance, or in the trolley problem, or, or an, an anonymous patient in, uh, in a doctor scenario, and I'm supposed to imagine myself being the doctor without, you know, any kind of medical training whatsoever. So, how we might ask, uh, are my intuitions supposed to guide anything in this case when it's so devoid of of history? And this is perhaps uh, a point that is closely associated with Bernard Williams, who was sort of sceptical towards experiments for, for that very reason. But um, there are other problems. We might get back to them eventually. But could, could, could we get back to, to the history of thought experiments and, and, I guess, philosophy in that regard? Anyway, but, but, but what are some of the early thought experiments and classics or something like that? Can you say something about that? Well, as, as Max said earlier, I mean, there is a, a tradition of using examples and cases and stories and 
stuff that look like thought experiments, certainly for a very long time. I mean, Plato is is very much invested in investigating how the stories we tell influence the way we we look at the world, or we navigate uh, our interaction with, with the world. But in terms of a proper experiment, and in, in and the very phrase thought experiment is, is probably, as far as I can tell, down to 1811, when it's used in a scientific context by a, a Danish scientist, physicist. Um, I think his name is Hans Christian Ørsted. So that's the first, as far as I know, use of the, of the term. And then it sort of gets picked up from there by an early mention is, I think, uh, um, F.H. Bradley in 1883 or something like that. But then that's hardly where sort of the analytic use of, use of it begins. Rather, that's maybe Ernst Mack is a... Uh, a good start for the analytic tradition, but that's not really where they start blooming. That would have to be with uh, George Edward Moore and and Ross and Pritchard. And that, I think, is a bit worrying because these philosophers were intuitionists. They had a well thought out and possibly bonkers theory about intuitions. So for them to use cases to try to tease out intuitions, as it were, isn't as problematic because at least they knew where they what they were looking for. Whereas as we sort of leave that kind of epistemology behind, then maybe the use isn't as unproblematic as it once was. Maybe we need that kind of epistemological grounding to in order to to make use of them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to, I mean, coming back to Robin's question, it's, uh, it's going to depend a lot on how, how we use them, right? What, what, what use we make of, of thought experiments. And, and I guess, as you say, there's, there's kind of a, a lingering question, which is what role are these intuitions, which we're supposed to um, uh, bring to the fore? What are, what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to show and, and how much, uh, kind of uh, weight do they have? Yeah. Um, and I think, it, I think it really varies in case to case. I think there, there might be also a big difference between, um, for instance, moral philosophy and uh, something like epistemology, the kind of weight that we give to, to intuitions. Yeah, I mean, as Singner was sort of gesturing towards uh, at the beginning there, I mean, in moral philosophy, maybe that's all we've got, sadly enough. Whereas that might not be true in the philosophy of physics, for instance. Yeah. And I mean, now we're, now we're talking about intuitions being sort of the arbitrary between different uh, um, positions, say, that you have. But I mean, I wouldn't say that you see intuition being the arbitrary in any other discipline other than philosophy. <laughs> like if you have, for example, uh, thought experiments in physics, for example. Of course, that's intuition. Some either here nor there with respect to, the, to to whether you should choose one theory over another. So, would you say that it's just within philosophy that that intuitions um, that we can use thought experiment as a 
as a either an intuition pump or as a a bring forth the intuitions that make the final judgment, so to speak, when it comes to comparing two theories, theory choice or falsifying a theory or what have you. Probably. <laughs> Probably it it is probably just philosophy that that operates like that. Thanks. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> there's also another difference. I I gather. I mean, I'm not uh, well read in physics, but my understanding is that a thought experiment there is usually, or at least some of the time, thought of as a sort of pre-study uh, in order to then go on and design a kind of follow-up experiment and then so using it as a guide in that way I mean might be unproblematic but maybe sometimes in philosophy we reach a point where you know we reach a deadlock these intuitions are all that we have barring of course a lot of interesting experimental philosophy that I think Signa knows far more about than me but still um, so that that's always a, a way to go trying to to ground them in that way, yeah. like test our intuitions um, in a more experimentally controlled way. That might be one way forward to once again, as analytic philosophy has done so often, try to emulate physics or the natural sciences. Yeah, I am. Um, you hope at least that. Um, that the thought experiment is is only one premise in the argument, right? Uh, I think if if the point was being made purely by um, kind of an abstract thought experiment, then you might have some real kind of doubts about it. Um, but if it's if it's used to bring out a, a, a or to to make one premise in the argument, and that premise has maybe got some other intuitive appeal to it, um, um, which which is made vivid by that thought experiment, then, then I can see a use there. Um, and I think that that kind of embeddedness is crucial. We need other stuff as well. And I think that that's an excellent point, as far as I understand it, uh, speaking of the continental analytic divide that comes from Gil Deleuze. He's saying that there's a limit to thought experiments because while they give us maybe our intuitions, they've got no way of checking where those intu intuitions are coming from, what, what's, what's their history, what's, what's with the zeitgeist at this particular moment so that I make this particular judgment in this case, where, where are these intuitions coming from? And we can't really make thought experiments test themselves in that way. So there we're sort of flying blind. Maybe we need something to ground that kind of we need an analysis of, of our yeah, and it sort of pertains to the question of what makes uh, a thought experiment good or bad uh, that really needs to be addressed. Uh, because if you can't really pinpoint what makes an, uh, a thought experiment bad or good, then, I mean, really, what's the point and what function does it play within philosophy? So. So you could say easily, you know, uh, thought experiment is good if and only if it, for example, brings forth those kind of intuitions that that either, if it's if it really sort of strengthens certain intuitions and bring them forth 
to the reader, then you might categorize it as a good experiment, whereas one would be bad that doesn't do that. So they, but those evaluations are all also, uh, I mean, dependent on kind, right? Whether it's good or bad must depend upon the purpose of the experiment in question. It's one thing to use it for pedagogical or illustrative purposes. It's another one to, yes, to actually use it as a proper experiment, whatever that might mean. Yeah, but now we're talking about, I mean, proper experiments, <laughs> not for not for entertainment purposes. Um, as great as that might be. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Should we say something about how we understand what an intuition is in this context? Yes, Maybe that, that would be, be good. As I understand it, we use intuition in different senses in different contexts, right? So if you speak with someone who's done work in psychology, they will probably understand it in a different way than a philosopher would. At least that's my impression, having had a discussion with uh, a psychologist. It seemed that we were understanding the, the term differently, having it um, correspond to like slightly different concepts. Um, but my understanding of philosophy is something along the lines that it both has to do with some kind of emotion or feeling, some kind of, it's very um, tied, I would say, in some sense to to morality, at least in my my field where I work. Um, so some kind of like feel whether something is good or bad, right or wrong, reasonable or unreasonable. Um, but I think what's interesting is that it's not just a feeling, it's something that should also be able to develop when you have new reasons. So we kind of have this, I don't know, reflective equilibrium situation with the intuition. So maybe you start out with some kind of feeling and then you have an argument or you get more reasons. Um, and then you kind of update your intuition accordingly. And then you go on um, with that process. So it's not just a fixed feeling, it's something that evolves. Yeah, I think that's a crucial part in the difference here that we were talking about earlier about how they work maybe in theoretical philosophy on the one hand and in practical philosophy on the other. Because in practical philosophy, something like the, at least analytical practical philosophy, something like the method of reflective equilibrium or Aristotelian endoxic methods or something of the sort is pretty much universally used. And in that context, we might not need to be that worried because then nothing really has any kind of ultimate weight. They're all sort of pro tanto reasons for adopting, for or against adopting different positions. And maybe then that's okay if, if this is what we're doing all along and you know, just continuously updating in the way that you suggested, then maybe we needn't be as concerned as I might have made out to be earlier on about their epistemic merit. Yeah. And I think there's another kind of an, another strand uh, of thinking about what an intuition is, which I think, which I think has got Kantian roots, which is much more about seeing things as they are, having some kind of insight into into reality itself. Um, um, and an intuition in, in that regard is is supposed to, you know, you're supposed to reach a point where you, where you, where you can see what's right and what's wrong, or what's true and what's false. And I think uh, intuition is at least. Uh, at least one kind of aspires for one in one's intuitions to to give that kind of insight, to give a little bit more than just um, um, 
yeah, a, a feeling or a, a suggestion. That seems to correspond somewhat to how we use it in ordinary life, where we feel maybe that we have an intuitive understanding of how to do something, but that just comes from a lot of experience. So it just like follow through. It has to do with like what's actually out there and learning something about it and incorporating that and not just, or it has nothing to do with moral intuition instead. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. But that also kind of brings us full circle as far as history is concerned, because that broadly Kantian way of, of thinking was also with Moore and Ross and Pritchard and those intuitionists were, were on about. So maybe I was too hasty earlier on saying that, you know, we've left all of that behind because clearly we haven't. And maybe that's a wonderful thing. So uh, I think it's time to actually present some sort of thought experiment. We've been talking about thought experiments without actually mentioning a thought experiment. So maybe for our listeners that could be interesting. Um, could we start with you, Signe? You brought a thought experiment. Sure. Yes. So I wanted to say something about a thought experiment that I think originally comes from Peter Singer, and it's called something along the lines of the child in the pond. So roughly the case is that you walk outside and you come by a pond and in the pond you see a child who's about to drown. And the pond is very shallow so you could easily walk into the pond and help a child out of it, but it would cost you your clothes. Your clothes will be ruined if you do that. So the question at the end of the experiment is something along the lines of do you have an obligation to rescue the child in this case? And I think that many people would say that, yes, of course you do. There is a little child out there and the child will drown if you don't go into the water and help them out. And the only cost is your clothes. And that's not that much. So what does Singer want to illustrate with this example? And is it a good thought experiment? Maybe we should discuss that if it's good or not. So I think his point is that, okay, if you have the clear intuition in this case, that of course you ought to rescue the child, you have an obligation to do so, or you have a really strong reason to do so, that carries over in a whole lot of other contexts as well. So the case that he makes is that if you have a reasonably good enough income, the cost of having to replace your clothes is a very, very, very tiny cost to pay in this case. And similarly, you could use those, the the money that it would cost you to, to replace your clothes to help children in um, other parts of the world. For instance, by buying some medicine or providing education or stuff along those lines. So if you think in the pond case that you ought to help the child because there is a huge um, stake there, namely the life of the child, you have similar situations that you face today where there's a huge stake and the cost for you will be very insignificant in comparison. Is this a good thought experiment or bad? Do you guys see? I liked Robin's distinction or the distinction that came out from Robin and Fritz's discussion about whether it's good in like ped pedagogical terms and whether or not it's good like as a thought experiment in or of itself. I think in terms of being a pedagogical thought experiment, it's, it has its virtues. It's very clear, it's very simple. It's, it really picks out some intuitions that seem to be very important in this case. But whether or not it's a good thought experiment in itself, 
I guess that's a very much more complicated question. Some people, some problems might start to emerge when you sort of start drawing more implications out of it, because in effect, what you were saying when you were saying that this pertains to a whole lot of other situations is, is what you say. I mean, that's the same as saying that now imagine that you're in an entire garden of such points. There are millions of them. All you have to do all day. I mean, if if you have a strong, strict, absolute obligation in the, you know, pertaining to the first child in the first pond, what about the tenth million child in the tenth million pond? Yeah. When when do you get tired? Right. Exactly. And and also, how crazy can these thought experiments yeah. become before we? Um, they start to lose their epistemic import, so to speak. Yeah, what I like about I find this it's uh, compelling actually. I, I think that's uh, I think it's <clears throat> it's it's nice because it makes um, it, it it kind of I can't imagine there are many people who wouldn't think the right thing to do is to go into the water and save the child, um, and then. Uh, and then, if we all agree on that intuition, then then I think it raises some really interesting questions about, um, for instance, geography. Like, how far away does that pond need to be before it's a, a good idea to go in, you know, or before you're compelled to go in and save the child? Or do you have to be the only person who's walking past the pond in order to do it? Um, and I think I think why it works so well is exactly because it, it makes us all buy into that first starting point and then uh, leads to some... I think interesting and uh, good questions. I think it's really interesting from a moral psychology perspective because I think you're right that geography really is one of the key issues as well as am I the only one? So in the pond example, I think there are different versions as well, but I think in the original it's you're by yourself or the example doesn't say anything else, so we kind of like implicitly assume that. But if you scale up the case, then of course that would be some of or a potential reply that someone would say, right, like why should I donate part of my income to do something when there is a lot of other people that could do the same for the same result or um... uh, I should think it's it's good <clears throat> for the experiments for a simple reason that it doesn't only um, so to speak bring forth intuition so uh, it also wrestles something else so basically it says that you know here's a scenario most people would would rescue the child and see it and have an obligation to do so so why not in this case? So it raises a question that sort of points to the problem rather than just bring forth an intuition in us. So it makes a bigger point, and that makes it, a, in my opinion, a better thought experiment than those who just rely on intuitions. I also like it for the very simple reason that it's it's simple in a way. I mean, it's it's every day. It's not demanding a huge amount from your imagination it's 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 an ordinary situation in a way i mean hopefully most of us won't have to encounter children in ponds drowning on an everyday basis but it's conceivable it's it's fairly close to home and that i think make also makes it a nice one because it's much easier to to act on on intuitions that are closer to home, so to speak, and those are hopefully more reliable, right, than in something fantastical like 
Putnam's Twin Earth example, where yeah. we're asked to imagine a world where water is still called water, but it's not H2O, rather it's X, Y, Z. And that, that raises all kinds of problems for how we refer to things. I think it's interesting because it seems that it's, uh, this is a different point, but that it rests on different types of intuitions or that you have this intuition that's supposed to come out at the end that like, of course, you ought to save the child. Of course, you have an obligation to do so. Um, but it also seems that that conclusion, then when we try to translate it to the everyday example or the example that we, most of us, I guess everyone in this room is facing, that we have um, some money that we could spend towards helping others instead of spending them on, on ourselves um, or spending it on ourselves. So when we kind of like um, come to the conclusion that we should help in the situation that we are in as well, that seems to be based on the intuition that geography, as you mentioned, Max, is kind of arbitrary. Like the fact that we are really close by or that we actually see someone isn't what grounds a reason for us to do something in this case. So it seems to have this extra intuition that it kind of that it kind of draws on as well. And I think that's interesting that you have different layers in this case. I think it's interesting uh, that you mentioned that there are different versions of, of, um, of this thought experiment. I think it's often the case in analytic philosophy that you have, uh, you kind of have a thought experiment and then somebody else takes it on and kind of um, grows it in different ways and creates a different one. And, and I think often um, when people dislike thought experiments, it's exactly because they feel like their intuitions are kind of being manipulated in lots of different cases and the kind of crazier the thought experiment goes, the harder it is to kind of get a grip on what you think about um, They're like open source, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, they're, they're often taken on and developed in, yeah. in ways which, I mean, I remember being an undergraduate and, and, and reading some of these thought experiments and just being like, this is silly now, you know, like yeah. this has got beyond the point where, uh, where our intuitions are worth anything and it's, it, yeah, it, it kind of actually, I'll, I'll be honest, it sometimes brings out a part of philosophy that I'm not that proud of, which is kind of like um, like a little bit ridiculous, a little bit abstract yeah. thought experiments, which are supposed to kind of uh, reach back down into um, into the issue with which they started and make a point. But, but, but do thought experiments have to follow the law of physics, science? Not necessarily. No. Um, it depends on, on the thought experiment. So you can have thought experiments about possible worlds where physics operates differently, right? Um, um, no, I, th I think it's you've got a blank canvas when you make a thought experiment. You can, you can do with it what you will. Mm. On the other hand, as Max pointed out, uh, it gets trickier the bendier we get with the laws of physics. It's uh, Our intuitions presumably get less reliable the more we twist reality. Yeah, that's true. Also, the more we twist um, humanity, right? So, like, you often get thought experiments about aliens, for instance, and I don't know, well, you know, in what sense is an, would an alien be conscious if their brain was made of, um, I don't know, some kind of electroplasma that we don't understand? And I think the further we get away from, from humanity, the, the weirder it gets as well, to, um, or the harder it gets as well to say anything about um, yeah, whether our intuitions have any validity at all. And maybe maybe this is the point then 
as long as we're on the sort of ordinary every day here to bring in one of my particular favorites and and it's just a, a short paragraph and we can debate later whether this actually is a thought experiment or, or whatever but it's pretty much the opening the opening uh, paragraph of Elizabeth Anscombe's uh, On Brute Facts, a very short article. She says, following Hume, I might say to my grocer, truth consists in agreement either to relations of ideas, as that 20 shillings make a pound, or to matters of fact, as that you have delivered me a quarter of potatoes. From this, you can see that the term does not apply to such a proposition as that I owe you so much for the potatoes. You really must not jump from an is, as that is really what is the case, that I asked for the potatoes and that you delivered them and sent me a bill to an owes. Now this thought experiment, if it is, I mean, Anscombe is just asking us to imagine that we've ordered potatoes as ordinary as it comes, I suppose. But this raises a whole lot of questions. For one thing, she's poking fun at Hume's law, the idea that you can't derive an ought from an is, which is reasonable in many contexts, but maybe not when dealing with your grocer, say. It also raises, and this is the main point of the article, the idea that maybe explanatory bruteness or whether a fact really is as far as we can go whether we can dwell further or not is relative to context among many other things so this is just a starting point as we gestured at earlier but still i, I like it in its mundaneness in, in the fact that it's so so every day a very wittgensteinian point maybe that philosophy ought to proceed from the every day but still do you have any intuitions with regard to this case? Do I have intuitions? I think it's a surefire way of refuting Hume, for one thing. I mean, it pretty much demonstrates that, you know, Hume's law isn't a law. It might be a guiding principle in some cases, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, I think I'd have to read it again. Actually, it's um, uh, it's the first time that I'd that I'd heard it, and um, I hadn't thought about potatoes in quite that way before. <laughs> so it's the idea that when you get the potatoes, that's an is, and that right gives rise to the obligation to pay for the potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Unless there's something else fishy going on, Anscombe later suggests maybe the whole potato thing was just part of an actor troupe's performance or something of the sort. That changes everything dramatically because mm -hmm. if it's all, it's all part of a play, then the fact that the grocer supplied you with potatoes isn't brute relative to context. Then we need to dig deeper. Yeah, but there's a yeah, there's a big difference between your thought experiments that you presented. I, I think because seeing this, it's you get an intuitive feeling when you hear about it. This one, you have to. Weasel it requires out. something more. You have yeah. to know about you. You have to know about Hume's ideas about yeah, uh, or De deriving in or from an is yeah, uh, yeah, or in this case an o's. So uh, the, the the requirements are higher. It feels to to get the right. intuitive feeling from, from yes, this. yes they are, and yeah. it's also maybe problematic for a 
a number of reasons that Max raised earlier. I mean, yeah. it's it's one of them in those instances where philosophers are being clever. Yes, and everyone likes that. <laughs> it, it is great fun, yes. at least to me. But you know, yeah, there, there's sure there are problems there. It's not mm. immediate, maybe. But do you think that it actually refutes Hume's law? Couldn't it be the case that there is something implicit behind the um, the case? So you know that you kind of like have this normative agreement that when you presented with potatoes, you also have to pay. So it's not a pure driving an odd from an is. You also have a normative component, and this is how we make a transaction. Yeah, and but now we're we're talking, and still we sort of raised the because in in the scenario that you give. I mean, then normativity comes from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And then now we're, we're off starting to look for it. And maybe that was the point all along. I mean, there's, as I said, there's more to this. And I'm not sure we should go into it. But I mean, the, the point I was trying to make is that we could, we could start out from the ordinary. And maybe that's a good thing, because then we... Uh, at least we know where we're starting from, and then all kinds of mysteries pop up. So you mean like the, the, the context here, someone delivering potatoes is more everyday than walking past the pond and finding a child in it alone? Oh no, I like the pond yeah, yeah, for that particular yeah, but I mean, reason. But, but I mean, the likelihood of someone delivering potatoes is much higher than you actually... Yeah, it's even more everyday. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Is that the point? Yeah. To some Yes. So that we can start by the puzzles of the everyday. Mm. Yeah. It's also closer to, it's really closer to an illustration, right, than a, than a thought experiment, or at least the, the boundaries are a little bit more blurred. Um, it's, uh, yeah, Anscombe's kind of making her point in a vivid way, and, and there's a way of reading that as a thought experiment, but you can also just read it as, as um, yeah, giving a vivid description of, uh, of the point that she wants to make. And I think that's quite nice that, um, that there's kind of not just one single function for, for thought experiments, that they can kind of um, pop in and out of, of the discourse in different ways. I think that maybe we could make it into a thought experiment as well, like having two different worlds, where in one world you get the potatoes and then there's this, <laughs> this O's that follows from it, but in another world there's nothing like that. Like You don't have transactions in that way and potatoes have maybe no right, value. Money is made of something else. And yeah. And then all of a sudden we're moving away from the the everyday and then But then we can probably learn a lot from it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean we shouldn't be absolutists about these things, I think. So Max, what is your thought experiment? Um my thought experiment is the brain in a vat. Um so a vat is a, is a kind of old industrial word for a, a container, a big tub, um, usually one in a factory. And the idea with this thought experiment is that a living brain is submerged in an unspecified liquid in this vat. Um, and just as our own brains, um, I suppose, represent the world by having certain uh, electronical or electric impulses and giving certain outputs, um, so the brain in the vat is manipulated um, by electronic impulses in the liquid in exactly the same way that yours or mine is being um, uh, manipulated now. Um, and 
I suppose the idea is is that uh, that brain would then have a have a consciousness, have a perspective on the world, would be experiencing the world in just the same way that you or I are doing now, um, but would be kind of radically uh, wrong um, in its understanding of, of the way the world is, um, because it wouldn't realise that it's actually merely a brain in a vat. Um, and I, I think this this kind of this kind of thought experiment has been around for a really long time. I think the brain in a vat is, is really a kind of 20th, 21st century um, um, telling of a story which has been around at least, I mean, at least since Descartes um, and Descartes' evil demon argument in which um, Descartes imagines that there's an evil demon which is um, controlling his mind and telling him that the world is not the way in which it is and Descartes thinks that um, almost everything um, that the evil demon is uh, presenting to, to his mind could be completely false. Um, and Descartes' point is still um, uh, from that place I'd be able to um, be sure of one single thing, which is that I'm conscious or um, I think therefore I am. Um, but I think it's got even, even older roots than that. I think it goes back, I mean, you get ideas like this in, um, in Plato, with Plato's cave, um, this idea that you're imprisoned in a cave and there are shadows on the wall. And, and in some sense, you wouldn't be able to tell if that's the only thing that you'd ever had, that those shadows were, were not reality itself. And I think you, you have this kind of idea also in uh, non-Western philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in the Vedas, which are um, uh, an ancient Indian philosophy or an ancient Indian text, you have this idea of the veil of Maya. Um, this idea that there's a, um, some kind of veil beyond which consciousness can never cross and reality is outside of it. And, and all of these ideas seem to have this same, um, this kind of same central seed to them, which is, uh, which is that we can never know. We can never know how things really are in themselves. Um, and yeah, and I, I guess in the 20th century, 21st century, then it gets mixed up with you know, films like The Matrix and sci-fi and, and we quite like this idea of a virtual reality and the, um, and the brain which is being manipulated by, by modern science. Yeah. But, but I think those ideas have, have been around for a long time. Um, and I suppose you can put the brain in a vat to use in lots of different ways. Um, so the kind of most obvious thing to do with it is to argue for a global skepticism, to, to say, we never know that we're not brains in vats, Therefore, all of our knowledge, or um, at least a great expanse of our knowledge, um, what we know about the world, we, we can't prove beyond doubt that that's the case. Um, and there's a long um, history of philosophical texts which have been playing with this idea and trying to refute the skeptic. Um, but you can also use the idea of brain in a bath in more local ways. So I work in a philosophy of perception. Um, and in the philosophy of perception, the idea of a brain in a vat is often used as a premise in a particular kind of argument. Um, so perceptual experiences, we often think of perceptual experience as, um, as special, as distinct from other kinds of experience, like imagining or thinking or remembering. Um, and the reason is that perceptual experience seems to kind of give us direct access to how things are. Um, um, and if you think that that's the case, that um, perceptual experience gives us some kind of insight into the world. Um, well, that that kind of argument gets um, undermined by the idea of a brain in a vat, right? Because um, if we think of experience as giving us some kind of direct access to how things are, but our experience is um, 
qualitatively exactly the same as the experience that a brain and a bat would be having, um, then it seems like that kind of intuition as to the nature of perception experience is, is going to turn out to be right. Um, that's just kind of one example of one of the ways in which you can use that, not, not, a, um, not to make a point of global skepticism, but in a very particular case. Is this a good or bad thought experiment? I mean, I like it as far as it's in, you know, it, one part of, of it is, is just giving a vivid illustration. And, you know, that's probably why there are so many iterations of it and why it's been with us so, so long. Because as soon as you make a distinction between appearance and reality, then in order to bring that distinction home, you need something like this. And so therefore, I mean, and since, since that's such a fundamental idea, of course, we're going to use way, we can use ways and we should use ways to, to illustrate that distinction. Then, as Max points out, it's also something that can be used for more localized issues as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that, it, um, that this kind of um, fear or anxiety that how things seem is not how they are, that there is this distinction between appearance and reality is... I guess it's really human in a sense. Like it, it says something about us. Um, these kind of questions of am I dreaming or am I being deceived or is, is the world as it seems to me? They kind of, they kind of go deep. Uh, it's no surprise that, um, uh, that this has been around for a really long time. Um, because I think, yeah, um, as you say, Fritz, it speaks to this kind of primal fear that we have. But what's the intuition here? Um... Yeah, that's a good question. What is the intuition here? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Isn't that the intuition? That you're not, you can't be sure? <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I guess so. The, um, the, the intuition is something that you can't, um, yeah, that our, that our knowledge claims are not justified or are not adequately justified. Something like that. Or you could use it to test what we would say about cases where we just insert this. So we take a normal circumstance and then we add in the rider that, oh, by the way, you're a brain in a vat. And then we could see how that would change our take on it. And then we can Rather that than intuition, I would say. It sort of trades on that yeah. scenario rather than any sort of appeal to intuition. Um, I thought it was interesting listening to you because you used the word fear instead of intuition. Like we have this basic, or we have this mm. this really like strong fear as a response to this case. And we kind of start to question if our perception of reality is what we think it is. Um, so maybe it's an interesting case in that sense because the, um, we feel something with this case, right? But we don't describe that feeling primarily in terms of an intuition or a moral intuition, but more in terms of fear or some kind of like unease or something. Um, but you did mention intuition at least once when you described mm. the case. Uh, wasn't it something along the lines of um, we have an intuition that our perception of reality kind of corresponds to reality? Something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, so, so maybe the actually in this case the thought experiment is it's being used to break down an intuition, yeah, to challenge an intuition. Rather than pumping out new intuitions. Mm. Yeah. But it also provides an image for thought, right? 
and now, now we're sort of back to Plato again and, and the need to, to scrutinize these images that we, the stories we tell about ourselves. Uh, man is a creature that tells stories about himself and then comes to resemble that picture. Says Iris Murdoch, for one. I think it's really interesting that we picked so different things. To me, what I said really invokes some kind of strong sense about reasons or what we ought to do in a certain case. And what you said, Fritz, was more some kind of like intellectual puzzle. Like, does this hold up and why and why not? Like, um, and what you said has this, this more, um, the emotional response I have is more unease or fear. Like, mm. I'm so, so convinced that the world is built up in a certain sense and I can trust my perception. But then when you present the brain in that case, that can make me question every, everything. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for being a part of this podcast. It was nice to have you here. <laughs> <laughs>